Please join me in listening to the word of the Lord. From Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kevin. Well, welcome to King's Cross. Let's all go get ice cream and just drown our sorrows in a pint of Ben and Jerry's. How about that? I don't know. Uh, no, in all seriousness, that is, it's quite an opening, isn't it? Uh, that is quite the passage of Scripture. Not the pick-me-up. You, you don't want to see that on a coffee cup. No, you don't. Uh, you're not going to hang that in a, a, you know, uh, on a, a poster in a, uh, or a tapestry in a decorative gold frame. Like, no, it's, <laughs> that's kind of a... It seems like maybe a kind of a downer. Maybe, or is it? Well, anyway, Melvin Udall. Melvin Udall is a character played by Jack Nicholson in a movie called As Good As It Gets. And he's got uh, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. He, uh, he it disrupts his life in many ways. And so he sees a counselor for this. And as he is leaving his counselor's office, he walks through the waiting room, and there are a number of, of patients there in the waiting room. They all look miserable. I mean, from whatever they're struggling with, they just look terrible. And he stops before he leaves and says, what if this is as good as it gets? And they all just moan under the weight of futility, right? They just they feel that. They need encouragement. And instead of encouragement, they get even more uh, words of dep depression, right? Uh, so what's the deal here? So uh, Ecclesiastes can sometimes be like Melvin Udall. It can kind of be the downer. You don't want to invite him to your party. He doesn't have many friends. Melvin also went to, to a particular restaurant every morning for breakfast and had a particular table, a particular waitress, uh, and ordered a particular thing every day. It had to be perfect, or else he gave everybody a really hard time. And uh, he gets a new waitress one day, played by Helen Hunt, and, uh, and she is in her early 30s, but she's working multiple jobs. Uh, she's stressed, like she's young, but you can also tell that she is just feeling tired. And uh, when Melvin 
you know, gives her a hard time for being a new waitress, first of all. Uh, he likes routine, right? Well, he says at one point, well, judging from your eyes, I'd say you were 50. And uh, she, being in her early 30s, doesn't take that well. And she says, well, judging from your eyes, I'd say you were kind, but so much for eyes. Uh, and in, I think in a lot of ways, we look at Ecclesiastes and we think it's in the Bible, right? It's going to be encouraging. There's going to be something. Like it's right after Psalms and Proverbs. It's, there's going to be something flowery in there. It's going to be nice. We don't expect what comes out of its mouth. Uh, we don't expect that Ecclesiastes is going to say this, right? We want something encouraging. Um, at first glance, Ecclesiastes does seem just like Melvin Udall. Uh, it has kind eyes, but then you read it uh, and says things you never expect the Bible to say, things that are a real buzzkill. And I think as a result, so many people don't pay attention to Ecclesiastes. Maybe we don't know what to do with it. Uh, we don't know how to handle it. We, we might read chapter 3 every now and then at a, at a funeral, you know, a time to be, to be born, a time to die, a time for mourning, a time for dancing. Like we might read that section, but as a whole, what do we do with this thing? Um, well... If we hear Ecclesiastes out, and if, I mean, really, if you hear Ecclesiastes out, if you listen to the whole thing, uh, at the end, what you find, however, is that what is happening is they're deconstructing uh, false hopes so that we can rebuild true hopes. And we're not going to, he's not, I'm not going to go through all 12 chapters today, but we'll, we'll begin to piece our way through this and we'll have some hope. If you hang with me, we'll have some hope at the end of this message. Um, so speaking of words of wisdom, right? This is wisdom literature. This is graduation season. And many of you have uh, perhaps been to a graduation party or two or maybe 12. Uh, there's been a, a number of them. Uh, maybe you've been to a commencement ceremony. And when we go to a commencement ceremony, we expect words of wisdom. We expect uh, from the speaker, we expect you know, pithy sayings. We expect uh, motivational stories. Uh, we expect uh, you know, uh, one-liners that are moving, that, that tell us what success looks like and how to prepare and to, to find success in life, right? Uh, and sometimes it comes down to having better rules to live by. You know, if you just love your neighbor, if you just, if you just work hard and, and don't cheat, if you just reach for the stars, you'll have success, that's often what those can be reduced to. And sometimes we like those parts of the Bible that say, that say, honor God, that say, do this, be a good person, and you'll be blessed. We like those parts of the Bible. I like rules. I love rules. When rules tell me that if I live a certain way, that life can be predictable. I like predictable. I do. Uh, I like that, that I comes before E, like in, in the English language. I like that, that I always comes before E, but there's exceptions, aren't there? I doesn't always come before E, is it? I but comes before E, except after C, and it's sounding like A as in neighbor and way. Uh, if you didn't know that, that's really helpful uh, information, but it's true. There's exceptions to the rules, and we don't, it's hard to process, but Ecclesiastes, one way of thinking of it is it gives us a lot of the exceptions to the rules, right? Uh, there are a lot of basic rules that the Bible gives us. These are kind of the exceptions to those, and it can be difficult to adjust to. Um, whenever you learn a foreign language, there's always those words that 
are special words. It's so frustrating to learn those that don't follow the same grammatical rules. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the king of humanity, who is the author, and I'll explain in a second. The king of humanity, everything vanity, refreshing sanity. The king of humanity, everything vanity, refreshing sanity. So the king of humanity, you know, Solomon wasn't, I mean, okay, there's a lot of debate about who wrote this, but we're, I believe we're supposed to understand this as coming from Solomon. We're supposed to think of Solomon when we read Ecclesiastes. And he was a king of kings in his day. He was a monarch of monarchs. He was so wise and so rich that, that kings and queens came from all over the world to come and hear him, to listen to him, to see his, his wealth. They couldn't believe that anyone could have that much. They respected him. Solomon was, uh, of course, the son of David, surpassingly wise. When, when he became king, God came to him and said, I'll give you anything you want. Just ask me. And Solomon said, uh, oh God, give me wisdom that I might know how to lead your people. Wow. And, and God replies and says, well, I thought you might say, give me, give me riches, uh, give me power, you know, give me anything else but wisdom. So God says, not only will I give you wisdom, I will give you wealth. I will give you power. There will be no king like you. Uh, there has been uh, no king like you before you. You will be the wealthiest, uh, the wisest ever that has ever lived. Um, Solomon indeed was wealthy. He had multiple palaces. Uh, 180 bushels of wheat, 360 bushels of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle. They're organic. Uh, 100 sheep, deer, gazelles. Okay, that's what his household was given to eat every day. Not what he owned in total, but what he was given every day. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, deer, gazelles, other animals. His army had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he was wise. He wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,000 songs. Uh, He was a scientist. He studied trees and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He documented things and... Uh, he, he just wanted to know. He was wise beyond comparison, wealthy beyond comparison. He had as much knowledge as you might want, as many degrees as you could possibly get, as much money as you could possibly want. He had a thousand wives and concubines, as much sex as anyone could possibly want. And yet he is here saying, all that's vanity, all that's meaningless. All right, so if, if he says it's vanity, it makes you listen, doesn't it? If the man who had everything says, you know what, I got to the top, and it's not what you think it might be, you listen, wouldn't you? Anthony Hopkins recently, uh, I don't know how recently, actually, but it's been on social media recently, says this. Anthony Hopkins, Oscar-winning actor, actor of actors, really. I mean, he is well-respected from, uh, for a lot of his work. As I meet young people, he says, uh, they want to act, they want to be famous, and I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. Just accept life as it is. Be grateful to be alive. I don't think he's being depressing. 
I think Anthony Hopkins is saying, look, I've been there. And it's, I remember what it was like before I was there and what I thought it would be like. And then I remember, I know what it's like now being there and it's not what you think. Ecclesiastes is actually a very good friend. Ecclesiastes isn't just ruining the party. I think he's saying there's something better. There's something better for us. And that's the hope. And he wants to point us to this better hope. There is a hope. And so this may be one of the best books of the Bible we could ever try to understand. I I, I mean, I'm excited about this series. This series already, as I've studied for it, has changed my perspective uh, and freed me uh, in so many ways through the gospel. And it connects to the gospel, as I'll get to in a little bit. But how often don't we feel like, if I were just a little wiser, a little smarter, maybe had one more credential, maybe had a little more money, a little more property, one more thing, if I, was, if I had the time to have a, just take it easy a little more, wouldn't my life be so much better? Or maybe the flip side of that uh, would be, uh, how, you know, if only I would stop making such stupid mistakes. <laughs> if only I had fewer expenses. If only I had more rest and fewer annoyances in my life. Then wouldn't life be so much better? I don't know which, which angle you, you might be feeling right now. But Solomon takes us there. Because he's saying the next level is not what you think. I'm the king of kings for his time. There's no one greater. And he's saying it's not what you think. So there's the king of humanity, and then there is uh, then there's the insanity too. But actually, you know, um, who is Solomon? What's a good way to describe him? Uh, Zach Eswine is a pastor who gives this illustration. Says, uh, imagine you go to Poland, and and imagine two different tour guides in Poland. Both of them know the same things. Both of them may may say the exact same things as they lead their tour groups through Poland. But one of them learned it from a book, and the other lived through it. One studied everything there is to know about Poland before World War II, during and after, and the recovery since, and one of them lived through it, remembers what the air smelled like before, before war came, remembers uh, what, what the war itself was like, had family in Auschwitz, had, uh, knew what it was like to get out of that and to process all that since. Like, just he was there, he knows it, he experienced it. You know, we have Ecclesiastes given to us from someone who's experienced it all, and it's even given to us by a God who knows what it's like to be human too, who became human and and lived and experienced all of this that we experience. So there is the king of humanity, and then there is everything vanity, everything vanity, and he doesn't pull any stops. I mean, he, or he pulls all the stops. Everything is vanity, he doesn't pull, pull any punches, Vanity, meaningless. Uh, another word for this is vapor. Uh, vapor. That you know, when I first moved to uh, the D.C. area, we had. Uh, I think vaping was more popular here than it was where I came from. Uh, I remember being in traffic and just seeing this big plume of white smoke, and I was like, "What's that coming from?" And then I learned later what it was from. Uh, vaping does that, like right? It has this just big white cloud of smoke. And if you didn't know what it was, if you'd never seen smoke before, and it was really close, you'd probably be afraid of it. You wouldn't know what this thing was. It's, it looks significant. You can't see through it, and yet seconds later, it's gone. It's gone. Something that looks so intriguing and, and special, seconds later, is gone. Back when in the movie, the movie stars, and you know when you could blow smoke rings. Uh, when you're smoking a cigarette. 
You know, it's impressive, and then it's gone. Such hard work to learn how to blow a smoke ring, and then it's gone into thin air. Uh, the word for vanity, like we think of vanity meaning like arrogant, pride, prideful, um, consumed with yourself, but it, it comes from the word of like meaning vain, like something that is done in vain, like you think it's going to be significant, it turns out not to be significant, like that's the word. It, the Hebrew word is hevel, uh, from which we also get the word, uh, the name Abel, right? So when Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. They named Cain. Cain was going to be the one who was going to reverse the curse, who was going to change things, who was going to strike the head of the serpent, right, and, 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 and conquer evil. And, and when Abel was born, Abel was like just extra. And they just didn't regard him that much. They just named him Vapor. They named him Abel. Uh, and it turns out Cain did strike someone's head, uh, but it wasn't Satan's. It struck Abel's head. Uh, and Abel, interestingly enough, became, his life was a vapor. We see how easily in his death, life is just a vapor. Uh, in uh, the Old Testament, this word here, uh, there's a, a, a version of the Old Testament that's actually in Greek, and so the special word there for, uh, for, uh, for uh, vapor, for meaningless, is also in the New Testament for futile. Uh, and we see it in Romans 8, that the world is subject to futility. That's the sense of this word. So I'm going to go through this, this passage here just really quick, line by line. Uh, and uh, so when it says, what does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? So literally toiling under the sun, when I was in college, I had, I had a, a shiny red truck. And I, I, I worshipped that truck. And I would wax it and wash it under the sun. Like literally, I would toil under the sun for this truck to be shiny. And, and looking back on it, like w- when I grew up, none of our cars were shiny. None of our cars were nice and new. And I, I felt like that reflected on who I was. Like I felt like that made me, you know, less than special. And so when I had a little bit of my own money, I thought, I'm going to have a nice shiny car. And uh, I had the time uh, to do it, so I would, I would wash that thing every week. Not just wash it, but I had a little squeegee, you know, to get the water droplets off, and then I'd towel dry it afterwards, and, you know, every now and then I'd wax it, sometimes once a week. <laughs> like, I loved this truck. And then one day, I traded it in. I traded it in. And like a week later, I saw someone driving it, and I thought, oh, you don't deserve my truck. <laughs> you know, I thought, who is this driving my truck? Not treating it cleanly like I would, you know, um, not keeping it nice. Uh, isn't that so, so true? Why did I do that? You know, honestly, probably the same reason that regrettably sometimes I yell at my kids. Sometimes, sometimes I, I, you have to yell to get their attention, but sometimes I yell because I'm, I'm frustrated and I'm angry. And why? Because I, I feel the world spinning out of control. I feel the, the meaninglessness of it, and I just want to grab hold onto something I want to be able to control something. And I want to stop the, 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 the meaninglessness of it all. That it's all, what, what do we gain really? You know, we could make a ton of money and then pass it on to somebody after we die. Or you could work really hard and, and pass it on to somebody before you die and, and that person takes what you've worked so hard for and doesn't appreciate the work you put into it. So next a generation goes, a generation comes. 
verse, I think, three or four here. Generation four. Generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Uh, you know, everyone talks about millennials now, uh, but 15 years ago, they were talking about Gen Xers and how crazy Gen Xers are. And 20 years before that, they're talking about hippies, right? So every generation is always thinking about the next generation that's after them. And it's generation after generation. It all goes, but the world stays. It blows my mind to think of how much history has happened here in Virginia. Like how many wars have been fought, how many people have lived here. Uh, when I get immersed into history and I start to connect with the characters uh, in whatever story it may be, uh, sometimes it feels weird after a while because I realize, well, they're dead now. And I, I connect with them so much. And yet there, there are battlefields around here where you look at it now and you couldn't tell that anyone had ever stepped on them. They look so pristine. How much more in Europe? You know, Europe where, where, where Caesar and the Roman armies used to conquer lands, any land that they could find, and yet, and yet you look at these beautiful, pristine pastures as though nothing had happened to them. How much more the Middle East and all of everything that's happened there? The earth keeps going. Generations come and go. The world stays. It, when you think of it, can be overwhelming. Uh, so, okay, even, even more and more. Uh, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. I really connect with this, that, you know, doesn't it feel like sometimes you rush and hurry and work and sweat only to do it all over again the next day? Like, you work really hard thinking, ah, I'll be able to rest tomorrow, but then tomorrow, just there's more to do. You, you clean the house, and the next day it's dirty again. Uh, maybe you feed the kids, they get hungry again. Uh, you work your tail off to get a promotion and you get passed up, someone else gets it. And so you work even harder to keep going. Again, it is, it, I'll just skip forward here, all things are full of weariness. We can't understand it. All things are weary. The, our eyes are never satisfied with looking at pretty things. Our ears are never filled with listening to amazing things. And there's nothing new under the sun. You know, when the first iPod came out, it was $400 and had five gigabytes of memory. Like, and it was big. Like, it was, if you had it in your pocket, like, you would notice. Like, it was this big half-pound hunk of metal. And yet, it was new. It was shiny. When Michael Keaton was Batman, he was the, he was the, the coolest guy who, to ever, like, be imagined for the role of Batman. And then how many Batmans have we had since? I don't even know. Um, but he even makes fun of himself a little bit in the movie Birdman, if you've never seen that. Um, Michael Keaton kind of plays this character who was once famous in Hollywood and now is trying to make it on Broadway. It, it's, it's kind of, it's very much about him. And yet, I like new things. There's nothing new under the sun, but I like it. That there's something about it that I said, yeah, I know it's not going to last forever, but I want it. I really, I want it. Luke Bryan has a, a country song. He's a country singer and one of the judges on American Idol. And he has a song, I think goes, the chorus goes, sunrise, sunburn, sunset, repeat. Anybody know that one? Okay. Uh, sunrise, sunburn, sunset, repeat. Like this is the picture of the ideal summer. Like that's all summer's supposed to be, simple. Sunrise, beautiful sunrise. Get a sunburn because you're out playing, sun, sunset, repeat. Don't you see the futility in that, right? It's, it's meaningless in some ways if you're repeating it over and over and over again. Uh, and you know what I learned after years in Florida? 
sunburns aren't permanent. Like, I, I lived in Florida for nine years and then moved to South Dakota, and after a year, I was as white as I was when I was born. Like, I, I thought I was going to get tanner. I thought I was going to get some work, but nope, it vanished. All the color vanished away. Uh, I lost the tan. So there's uh, this meaninglessness. Is, it's significant. And if, I wish I had a joke at this time to tell you because, like, we feel that pressure. We want to release something. There's got to be a release valve to let this pressure off. But that's the point of Ecclesiastes. It's saying, look at what we're doing and, and feel that pressure. You've got to find that release valve, and it's not going to be in just finding more stuff. In fact, this pursuit of happiness, it says in verse 14, is an unhappy business. The pursuit of happiness is an unhappy business, in verse 13, rather. And this unhappy word, it's the same as the word for evil that we see in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like, in other words, one definition of evil is to be endlessly seeking satisfaction outside of God. One definition of evil is to be endlessly seeking satisfaction outside of God. Isn't that so true? And, uh, and it's not just fleeting, it's also deceptive and harmful. In 1952, there was a, uh, a terrible, uh, I'm not sure what you call it, environmental disaster in London. Uh, there was a, a lot of fog and a, real, a cold snap, and the fog trapped in a bunch of uh, smoke. And the colder it got, the more people burned coal. And there was a, a smog that was so dense, thousands of people died. Like you literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Uh, and yet, it was nothing but vapor. But it can be so distracting and so powerful. So, uh, again, Ecclesiastes isn't telling us all this, and I'm not telling us all this out of spite, like to make you depressed, to make you sad, but rather he's saying, you don't get it. I'm not saying you can't party. I'm saying the house you're partying in is on fire. I'm saying there is a good life. But if you keep seeking it, in all these things, you're going you're gonna to be miserable. You're going to keep feeling that emptiness, that hunger. And Ecclesiastes is meant to drive us toward something better, towards something that is uh, more, uh, more satisfying. Uh, you know, Melvin Udall, so how do we get there? How do we make that jump? Melvin Udall, at one point, said to Helen Hunt's character, you make me want to be a better man. He said, I know there's a pill that I can take that'll make me more pleasant to be around, but I don't want to take it because it has a lot of side effects. But knowing you makes me want to be a better man, and knowing you makes me want and makes me be willing to take that pill. Even with all the side effects, knowing you. So what, what was that X factor? Really, it was love. The X factor was love. He needed, he needed courage to be able to go and, and have that prescription to take that pill, but it was love that pushed him there. And it does take courage, doesn't it? It takes courage to go, and, go against the grain. Uh, there, there, in the Lego movie, uh, the Lego movie, there's this opening song. And some of you have seen it because you're kids or you have kids or maybe just because you like it. Uh, but the Lego movie starts with this song. It says, everything is awesome. 
Everything is awesome. The exact opposite of Ecclesiastes, right? And this character, I think his name is Emmett, uh, says, you know what? I see holes in this. And everything is not awesome. And I think there's something more, there's something deeper going on here. It takes courage for, to step out of this, uh, to step out of this futility. But the thing that has to move us is love. The thing that has to change us we have to have changed hearts, and we have to be changed by that love. So we look finally at restoring sanity. The king of humanity, everything vanity, restoring sanity. How do we have that sanity? I mean, some would call it a quest for freedom. In, in the Dead Poet Society, uh, John Keating, played by Robin Williams, uh, is, you know, he's this English professor who teaches poetry and is trying to get his students to, to live, to, I don't know how to summarize it, to look within themselves for, for life and, and uh and something beyond just what they're told to do, right? But even as they pursue things, as they pursue that source of life, one of them ends up looking inside himself and finds nothing but shame. And ends up taking his own life. Finds nothing but emptiness, nothing but lack. And, and so we can't look inside ourselves. We have to find it from somewhere else. Because we keep looking inside ourselves, we'll just keep finding that emptiness. We need to be filled from outside. And so restoring sanity, we see Ecclesiastes, all of the Old Testament points to the need for Jesus. When Ecclesiastes, or a book like Ecclesiastes, leaves you feeling miserable, it's because you're supposed to think, ah, we're waiting for Jesus to come. And later, Jesus did come. And one day, he was uh, walking on his way to Samaria, and uh, he cut through a certain path by Jacob's well. And there was a woman who came there to draw water. And he said, give me a drink. And, um, and the Samaritan woman says, well, what are you doing asking me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So they have a conversation about racism and, and, and how, why he would stoop to her level. Um, and he says, but you know what? I'm here for you because if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him for water and he would have given you living water. Right? They're, they're at a, a well. It's the middle of the day. She's thirsty. She's getting water, and he's like, I've got something better. You're going to drink this water and be thirsty again tomorrow. You're going to take whatever it is, the water for the day. You're going to have to come back tomorrow thirsty again. But I have living water. And, and, he, and she says, what are you talking about living water? Uh, and, uh, and then Jesus gets to the point of it. He says, go call your husband and, and come back. And the woman says, well, I actually don't have a husband and Jesus says, well, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And there's no way he would have known this. This is before the NSA and Alexa all listened in on our worlds. And, you know, like this is before anyone had Facebook and knew how many husbands you had had. Um, sorry if you work for the NSA. That's, I wasn't trying to hurt you there. Um, but, like, this is before people knew stuff about other people. He's an outsider. He didn't know, but he did know because he was the Lord. And she says, you've got to be something special. Give me this living water. You see, she could not even see the futility of looking to husband after husband after. And then a man who she hoped would be her husband, she was caught in a cycle of hoping that one day a man would fulfill that hole, fulfill, satisfy that hole inside her heart. And she could not break out of that rut. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. It's trying to say, look, we're, we get stuck in ruts. But Jesus has what will really, truly satisfy us. You know, I believe 
that it's by grace that God allows us to be dissatisfied with things in life. Because it's through dissatisfaction with things that, that we can see what's broken and, and we can turn to him and truly be satisfied. It's amazing when it says that um, in, in Romans 8, that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If life is miserable ever for you, stop and ask yourself. I mean, you could almost stop and say, thank you, God, that the world is disappointing me right now because I know the world always will. Show me how you satisfy me in ways the world never can. Jesus, you know, talks about how it's evil. It's an unhappy thing to be pursuing happiness in other things all the time. And he says, he says this, that um, once that, there, that the generation before him, when the crowds in Luke 11, when the crowds were increasing, he said, this generation is an evil generation. Uh, it seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. The crowds were looking to Jesus to, to give them something that would make them feel like they were a part of something special. They, they, they wanted something from Jesus. They didn't want him. And Jesus says, this is truly an evil generation. And something will happen. That the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, the queen who, ironically, the queen who was famous for coming, who was wealthy, but came to visit Solomon to see how wealthy he was. The queen of, of Sheba, who was wise, but came to Solomon to listen to him and, and hear his words of wisdom. That queen, who didn't, doesn't even worship God, will rise up at the judgment and will, will condemn that generation. Because, because why? Because something greater than Solomon is here. See, we need someone greater than Solomon, a true king of humanity, a true king of kings, a true monarch of monarchs, lord of lords. In a world that is fleeting and vapor, one who, when he died, death could not hold him. One who, in the midst of everything that is temporary, would prove that there is a constant thread and that constant thread is God, that thread we can hold on to in the midst of everything and have hope. What gives us that freedom? When we know, not when I'm in control, but that God's in control and he cares for me. And how do I know that he cares for me? I'm just saying this in closing. How do I know that he cares for me? That what is that restoring sanity that, that, can, that can give me hope? I know that he cares for me because I know that he himself willingly became temporary for me. That he became flesh. Isaiah says all flesh is like grass. The grass grows, it withers, it fades away. And Jesus willingly became one of us so that we could live forever. He willingly, talk about futile. He did nothing wrong and yet was executed for, with the death penalty for us who with all of our vain searching deserve endless searching. He gives us such mercy and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for loving us as you do, for, for showing us how empty a lot of the things in this world are. Father, I, I do pray that as we look at our lives, as we look at things, we might be disappointed 
And Father, I almost pray that we would be, but I pray that you would show yourself in those moments to be so much greater, so much more satisfying. Father, throughout the next number of weeks, as we look at the different ways that the world uh, promises to satisfy us and fails to do so, um, as we kind of just take, take one step at a time through this, uh, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, genuinely uh, see our lives change. Father, I pray you would help us uh, by giving us changed hearts, that you would loosen the grip our hearts have on such uh, frivolous things. And uh, Father, show yourself even more to be glorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.